Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Right now, uh, Timna Tanners joins us, a metal and mining analyst at Wolf Research. She is exquisite on what you do with all this stuff because you turn it into steel and other stuff. We're thrilled she could join us on short notice this morning. Timna, you're in Toledo at CLF's hot brocredit factory. You're in a factory in Toledo, Ohio, where they take all this stuff we're talking about and they actually make stuff. What do the people in Toledo in that factory think of the commodity cycle we're in right now? Well, thank you for having me. Good morning. Um, the fact is that the situation in Russia-Ukraine invasion is, is critical for raw materials across our coverage. And in particular, uh, when we look at the steel industry, the big impact is the um, complete squeeze on raw materials. And so this facility actually in Toledo, Ohio, is a, is a real hedge for cliffs, which we cover, um, in, in enabling them to buffer themselves against this super squeeze in pig iron. Uh, Russia and Ukraine comprise two-thirds of the, of the U.S. pig iron imports. And so this is the, the nice offset made in the USA to that uh, import situation. Can you substitute in your world, if there's a given raw material from Russia, is it easy to substitute Chile as one example? No, no, it's really not. Um, and I think, you know, of course, it depends on the commodity, right? I can't make a blanket statement. But if you look at palladium, which we don't cover, but you can see it's 20% Russia. And like I mentioned with pig iron, it's two thirds um, Ukraine and, and Russia. And the alternative is Brazil. And they certainly can't compensate for that lost production. And you think about a mine, you know, it's really not a switch that you flip, right? And even if it were, you know, you, you'd take, even if you did have capacity, it would take, you know, easily three, six, 12 months to restart many of these. Many production facilities are off for a reason because it's antiquated technology. They don't have the electricity or the labor. And it's, it's hard for producers to decide to make that decision anyway, because they don't know how long this is going to last. And it's an economic very big economic decision for them. Tim, now we're prepared for some sort of announcement from President Biden about bans on imports of Russian crude. What would the uh, consequences be to the metals market if there was a similar ban on aluminum, on tin, on some of these other metals that really are uh, significantly imported from Russia to the United States? Look, um, the, you know, the aluminum market is a global market. The Americas are net short aluminum, but... Um, you know, already the market until a couple until this morning, I guess, was pricing in a pretty big shortfall. So it's hard to figure exactly what happens. But net net, I mean, Russia is about six percent of the aluminum market. That one in particular, we think, is very affected because it's not only the direct Russia production, Ukraine production, but also the impact indirectly on higher power prices in Europe. So that's why I think is one of the commodities that's most um, squeezed right now. But you also look at anything with a lot of energy input. You look at zinc, zinc refineries, zinc prices are up. 
Uh, Russia is a huge producer of nickel. I think um, you can see what's happened with nickel recently. It's it's uh, phenomenal. There's a a little scary if you need it. Right. Well, but exactly. That's where I was going to go. The financialization of the commodities market. You're talking about the on the ground, getting the metal out of the ground and giving it to people who need it for products, et cetera. And yet we're dealing with something that's highly financialized, highly leveraged. And you're seeing massive disruptions. How much are the moves that we're seeing in some of the pricing due to that and not necessarily the true shortfalls or a gauge of supply and demand in the physical market? Physically, these these products are short. When we're talking about anything traded on the LME prior to these disruptions, the markets were already very tight. Now, that said, if if this situation will resolve tomorrow, hypothetically, of course, you know, the commodities would would definitely retreat in the case of nickel, for example. But um, there's been actual physical disruptions of alumina production in Ukraine um, of a a large uh, facility and refinery there. So uh, it's a little bit of both. But, yeah, there's no quick production fix. And in some cases, there have been you know, irreparable you know, damage done to ports and infrastructure that are going to have long, uh, longer lasting effects. 10.45 Eastern, we will hear from the President of the United States, Tom, on holding Russia accountable. 10.45 Eastern, will we hear from the President of the United States on holding Russia accountable. As we report this morning, according to people familiar with the matter, that the President is set to ban US imports of Russian crude as soon as today. So, Tom, we'll hear from the President should be hearing from the president in the next couple of hours. I'm bringing up Brent crude here to see if we have enough lift up. We're at a 129 level. Yes, we come up nicely, 129, not up through 131 yet. That's my key level on Brent crude. Tim, I'm fascinated within the hyper detail of your note and your visits that there's always that great mystery of China and their inventories of metals. In the years that I've done this, it's always a great mystery. Do you have any understanding of what the true story is of China's inventory of these raw materials or finished products? I can't say that I've figured out China and and definitely not that angle either, but I would say that, um, you know, it definitely depends on the commodity. But if we're talking about some of these base metals, you know, China is not a natural producer of them. Uh, If you're talking about aluminum and steel, yes, they are 50% of the market and could um, amp up if they needed to, but if they'd have to have the raw materials and that's where the squeeze is, it's in iron ore, it's in coal, it's in alumina and bauxite. And that's where it's a cost problem, maybe not a scarcity problem if they do decide to ramp up. Can we have a technological application given this crisis where we are more efficient with our metals finishing our metals product? I think of Nucor years ago and what Nucor wrought. Can we have another technological leap in your world if it's so expensive again? Look, these, you know, I think this will be a wake-up call to the markets to say, look, do we really want to see a, a commodity that's so dependent on Russia, Ukraine, or on any given region, right? And I think that over time, there'll be more and more initiatives to develop technologies and alternatives. However, we're not talking about, you know, months or, or uh, quarters. We're talking about several years. And I think by the end of the decade, you'll you'll see again, more alternatives to, to um, you know, raw materials. And, and you're seeing already efforts to mine um, off the ocean floor, which uh, could supplement nickel, for example, which is particularly scarce. Tim, now all morning we've been talking about how long the conflict will last and what the longer term ramifications will be on uh, the economy as well as on some of these specific markets. Can you give us a sense of how difficult it is to turn off uh, some of these inputs in terms of where we import uh, some of these products and then turn them back on? I mean, how long do you expect some of these disruptions to last regardless of how long the conflict persists? 
Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. I think, I mean, if we're talking about the infrastructure, I'm not an expert in the conditions of the rails and the ports, but from our understanding, you know, those have been damaged. And so that would have to be repaired. Um, I heard that half of the rails that were operating out of Ukraine were not operable, but then half are. So that would just be a bottleneck, obviously. And then in terms of whether it's a mine or whether it's an operating facility, you know, um, an alumina refinery in um, Ukraine, that's 1.75 million tons is a significant producer globally. When you shut that down, it doesn't, you know, you can't flip a switch and restart that. Plus, you need to have material on the ground to run it and have a power supply. So that could take, you know, at best, you know, months to restart. And then if you have a, a steel mill orderly shut down, it could be quick to restart. And if you have a mine, you know, you could restart it. But again, it depends on having the people, the power, the materials on the ground. I think the bigger question is what's the state of the country when, you know, things are resolved and how quickly they can try to produce again. So far, it seems like there's uh, actually still um, shipments of oil and shipments of iron ore and met coal even as of last week. So, you know, I think it'll just be slow moving at, at first when things are repaired. Timna, thank you. Timna Tanner there of Wolf Research. Victoria Fernandez joins us, Chief Market Strategist at Crossmark, just to get the lay of the land to try to figure out what you do. Victoria, what have you not done in the last 13 days? Well, actually, Tom, we've been doing what we had been doing in the 13 days before that. We've been in the market. We've been trimming names that have been higher. We've been going in and buying names that have taken a hit and have come back and they've been on our shopping list. And whether that's going to be value names, it's a few tech names. We've been in the market trying to be opportunistic and trade some of these um, these names that are there in order to build our portfolio. Obviously, our outlook is a little more cautious than where we were before. So we could be a little more choosy on the names that we have, but we still think there's some buying opportunities here. Have you focused more on America? Because we were not making a joke about it, but the reality is, is in waves, we go buy international, buy EM, buy this, buy that. And yet it seems over the recent years, we all come back to Mother America and the big caps of America. Is that what we're going to do here in the next year? I think you're going to see that, Tom, and it's interesting because, as you know, Bob Dahl, our CIO, one of his predictions at the beginning of this year was that we might see international stocks finally outperform U.S. domestic stocks. And now we have to look at that and say, because of where we stand with the Russia-Ukraine issue, are we going to see that happen? And now I'm not so sure. There's been a big shift in that European economic recovery, and we have to wonder, is that going to be long-lasting? You talked about duration of inflation. The duration of this incursion is really Really going to weigh on the economics of both Europe and the U.S., and that could shift where people are investing. Right now, we're focusing more at the U.S. Victoria, we were talking earlier with Margie Patel, and she was talking about her optimism that this uh, conflict would resolve itself relatively quickly and that there will be buying opportunities. I do wonder, though, what the longer-term ramifications are for the volatility that we're seeing in the commodity space, the incredible surge in oil prices, and frankly, the lack of dependability in basic staples like wheat and corn. Yeah, I mean, look, Lisa, when we talk about the duration of this, 
the longer it goes on, obviously, the larger the ramifications are. And that's going to be to investor sentiment. I mean, you look at consumer confidence numbers over the last week, the daily numbers. Surprisingly, they've moved a little bit higher. Normally, they're highly correlated with gas prices. So it's a little surprising. But the longer this goes on, it's going to hit investor sentiment. It's obviously going to hit inflation for the longer term instead of maybe the spike that we were expecting. It's going to affect currencies. I mean, we saw how the um, euro Swissy went under parity this week. So you're going to affect the currencies. And then obviously we're talking about that European economic recovery as COVID retreated. That's going to be affected as well. So there are longer lasting effects the longer this goes on. The question is, does China step in and pick up enough of the slack from what the West and Europe is not going to do with Russia to kind of buffer the situation a little bit and allow Putin to continue? Victoria, thank you. As always, Victoria Fernandez there of Crossmark Global Investments. We get a domestic perspective now. She's been more than patient in this hour in joining us, Diane Swank, Chief Economist at Grant Thornton. Diane, I, I'm absolutely fascinated in all of your commitment to our Fed Day coverage as well. What kind of Fed Day do you expect that we'll see given this historic news flow? Well, the timing just couldn't come at a worse time as it's adding fuel to an already well-kindled inflation fire for the Federal Reserve. And we've seen certainly Jay Powell's commitment to still raise rates by a quarter point at the March meeting. And I think it's really important to understand that we risk seeing a much more entrenched inflation, not exactly the same as the 1970s, but eerie resemblance. And in his testimony to Congress, he made a point of saying, we are looking at the 1970s as a benchmark to avoid, not to repeat. Well, that means that the Federal Reserve has to actually combat a lot of the demand side of this inflation, right. even as we're seeing the supply shocks pile through from Russia. You and I have lived the measured of Alan Greenspan. With this war in Ukraine, can the Fed and their well-meaning economists, can they just get away from measured and say, look, we're going to act, we're going to raise rates, but it's a one-off? I, I think they have to be very cognizant of saying they're not going to allow inflation to get out of the out of control any further. They're already behind the curve. This puts them in a very bad position. And I think one of the hard things for the Federal Reserve is the tightrope that Jay Powell is going to be walking between wanting to raise rates and stem inflationary pressures and stop inflation from becoming a recession with stagflation without tipping financial markets into a larger credit market seizure. That would do the job for the Fed, but be much harder to recover from. And that's a very fine tightrope to walk at this stage of the game. Diane, there's also the question of the economic bleed through of higher gas prices as they do reach the highest, at least in a nominal, nominal basis, on record. What is the consequence for the average American family, given that gas prices are now north of $4 a gallon? Well, we've done calculations. Last year, it was over almost $1,000 per household, the record increase on a nominal basis that we saw in prices at the pump coming out of the pandemic. Now, this adds another $850 to $900 per household, and that wipes out much of the excess savings in the lower, certainly quartile of households that they were able to hold. And that's at a time when there are also those households at the bottom 50% also getting really slammed. 
that's at the same time that they're much more vulnerable to the rising rents and escalating rents that we're seeing out there in all the other aspects of inflation. It really is a very different sort of inequality issue that we're facing because also those who can work from home have the ability to hedge against and blunt the blow of higher commute costs when those who have to work in person in lower wage jobs cannot blunt that blow of higher commute costs. And that's all compounding the inflationary impact on them. So do you think that, Diane, potentially we could avoid returning to some sort of recessionary environment in response to the oil shock and yet see a massive increase in inequality? Or do you think that both could occur? Do you think that this could actually be a shock that changes the trajectory in a more meaningful way? Unfortunately, I think the risk is that it changes it in a much more meaningful way. Going into this crisis, we were looking at sort of the fog of war and what kinds of sort of decision rules and scenarios out there. And unfortunately, our resilience through this as an economy is a double-edged sword because it sort of suggests that the Fed can't afford not to raise rates at the same time that we're hitting demand with higher energy prices. And the two colliding means that we likely will need to see a slowdown that actually bleeds into unemployment to derail the inflationary pressures we see. In our best case scenarios right now, we're looking at an almost stall out of growth in the second half of the year that is not technically a recession, but not enough to hold the unemployment rate down after it falls further in the first half of this year. That is not a great scenario to have. And that's without the additional supply chain bottlenecks that you were talking about earlier, which I think are very important because, again, they add insult to injury and an already bad inflation scenario, and they continue to contribute to shortages out there. Diane, what would holding rates where they are do? What would actually a more dovish approach from the Fed actually accomplish in this market and, frankly, in this economy? My concern is that holding rates at their constant level right now, given the kind of momentum we've already seen, is that we would see a more entrenched inflation already seen expectations on inflation have risen, they will rise more. And that means expectations for people pushing it onto employers. I've talked to many employer who are now getting complaints by their workers that did not get as big a raises as the entry level workers got, and they're not keeping up with inflation. That's how it's a different way of getting to the 1970s. But I think it's an important thing to be thinking about is that you risk a much more entrenched, longer lived stagflationary environment. And the Fed can't afford that either. That is the American observation of the day. Diane Swank, thank you so much with Grant Thornton there. We stop and pause now, and we do with truly, and I mean this with all sincerity, one of the original founders of a woman's place in the securities business, and it is Anne Maletti, who long ago, Lisa, was at a shop called Strong and through various permutations is now with Allspring, and she is one of the nation's great value managers. Anne Maletti, uh, good morning. Good morning, Tom and Lisa. Thanks for having me on. I want to talk about, in your research note, you say women investors have the edge. Pray tell. <laughs> well, I think both you and Lisa really know and appreciate the dangers of groupthink. And so um, to get out of that, in our industry, we have to get out of the box and have a collection of people who are diverse, who come from different backgrounds, different places that can bring a different perspective, right? And I, I do think and believe that 
females bring different perspectives into this business than males. Okay. So maybe maybe none better than one another, but together collectively, it is better. So Anne, dovetail that into the moment that we're in right now. Where is the group think right now at a time when people don't know what to think? Mm-hmm. Well, I think the group think right now is there's a lot of uncertainty. We don't have a lot of answers. And how do you make calm decisions at times where there's a lot of emotion controlling the market, right? And a lot of different opinions about what's going on. But what I'm focused on, what our investment teams are, just get back to the basics, follow your investment process, and let that be the guide. And certainly you take inputs from all professionals in a lot of different areas, a lot of expertise, but you bring that together through the investment process. So are we going all Greek medicine here and say first do no (laughs) harm? Is that the basic idea? I, I, I think the basic idea is, look, the market was surprised by this. Most investors were surprised by this. The, tr- the natural trigger um, for most people, I think, is to say, don't want anything to do with any area of the market that can be impacted by Russia, including any emerging market. And I, I, I think you know, that's where we have to pause and say, is that really the right way to think when you're allocating capital? Or do we just have to look at this more holistically and say, this event definitely has caused change. Let's look at the changes, but not have a quick trigger on, you know, on on changing allocations dramatically. So what's your uh, sort of contrarian idea of the day in terms of what you are actually doing or not doing with your money that other people are moving in the opposite direction from? You know, so I think there's a couple of areas in the market that, um, you know, you don't have to get all out of equities. You can, I think the small cap space is very interesting. It is trading at a historically low or a historic gap relative to large cap in terms of evaluation perspective. And, you know, it's closed a little bit recently, but there's more room to go, to go there. There's also less impact from some of these global issues on the smaller companies. I think healthcare is interesting, right? We're talking about all the industries that are impacted. Healthcare is an area that underperformed last year, but has the ability, I think this year, as people are looking for areas where there's more stability to really outperform. So those are the types of you know, things that we're looking at. There's difference between going out and actively buying and convincing yourself not to sell. And those are two important points right now at a time when so many people are contemplating cash. Are you doing more of the former or the latter? It's a combination, Lisa, honestly, right? I think what you want to do as an investor is really make sure you own the best companies that are best positioned. So sometimes that does include making some trade-offs, selling a name that you thought was better positioned, but given the externals, things have changed. And so you're looking at the world a little bit differently. But most of these decisions mm-hmm. are on the margin. They're not sell everything in this area and move everything into that area. Is revenue growth a substitute for value analysis down the income statement? And of course, I'm speaking about high profit, high cash flow, mm-hmm. big tax, of course, trading at 50 multiples. But, <laughs> but, but, can you fold revenue growth into a traditional all-spring value strategy? Absolutely. And I, I do think it's become increasingly important, Tom. You know, 25, 
years ago, you know, when I was really starting in the business 30 years ago, you were looking at the value space a little bit differently. You didn't have some of the secular changes that we have going on today. Things in our economy are moving really rapidly. Mm -hmm. And so I think that revenue growth is an indicator of competitive advantage, right? It's not the, it's not the only metric to look at, you know? So again, if you're, if you're a growth investor, you still shouldn't be looking at just that metric, but it is important to know that yeah. you are focused on companies that are not going to zero or declining dramatically yeah. in value. Emma Letty, thank you so much with Allspring. Greatly appreciated Allspring Global uh, Investments, head of all of their active uh, equity. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.